This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. I want to thank, of course, everybody at uh, Villanova for the opportunity to come back here once again. I've been here several times and have very, very much enjoyed the times that I've been here. And also, I want to thank you all for coming. I, I feel honored to have such a large audience, and it's really been stimulating today extraordinary ways, the papers that I've heard, and the conversations uh, that we've all been involved in. So I think this is really an occasion that will be <clears throat> memorable for me, certainly, and I hope uh, you'll have some good memories of it as well. Uh, let me just talk a little bit about the, uh, the genesis of this paper. Uh, the first version of this paper was written for a session we had at Kalamazoo in May in honor of Paul Lachance, the late Paul Lachance, who died about two years ago. Those of you who work in medieval mysticism, of course, will know Paul's name very well, particularly the work he did on the Franciscan mystical tradition, but especially on Angela Foligno, which is why, of course, this paper starts with Angela of, uh, of Foligno. Uh, some of you might have heard the earlier version of that in May. This, this is a second version. Uh, in a couple of different ways. <coughs> For one thing, it may be, given the constraints of the uh, Kalamazoo time frame, I wasn't able to read the whole paper. And there are a couple of Dutch women in the audience who attacked me afterwards because I left out Rusbrook and said, how could you leave out the Rusbrook section? I said, well, I'm going to have to skip the Rusbrook and move on. So uh, this will be uh, contain more. But secondly, it's also changed towards the end. I'm now working on the sixth volume of uh, the Mysticism Project that I've been working on the Reformers uh, of the 16th century and their relationship to mysticism. And I'm discovering they too got <coughs> lost in the abyss, <laughs> at least some of them. And so I'm going to close here with uh, a few pages of reflections on the use of abyss language among the Reformers. Uh, obviously, it would be possible to go on not in this paper, but in later ones, about what happened to the abyss. Because certainly it's present in 17th century uh, mysticism, uh, at least in people like Burma and Angelus Silesius and various others. So, but what I'll do here will be to talk about the origins and genesis of uh, the language of the abyss down to about the middle of the 16th century. There's one handout going around. It's a picture that you probably, many of you will be familiar with, and uh, it'll come up in the middle of this talk. So, and I talk for about uh, 45 to 50 minutes, uh, and that should allow us lots of time, I think, for your questions or observations. <coughs> in the seventh step of our mystical itinerary set forth in the memorial, Angela Foligno begins to speak of God and the divine things as an abyss. She says, I am convinced that there is no saint, no angel, no creature which has anything near the capacity to understand these divine workings. And that extremely deep abyss, illit profundissimum abyssum. A little later she suggests that God's presence in the soul creates an abyss in her. God produces in my soul many divine workings with much greater grace and with so deep and ineffable an abyss that this presence of God alone, without any other gifts, is that good that the saints enjoy in eternal life. Angela's use of abyss language becomes more frequent in the instructions that she composed to explain the memorial. 
Six of the instructions make use of the abyss as an expression of our apophatic mysticism centered on the consciousness of God as what she called the unknown nothingness, nikil incognito. Especially powerful is instruction four, which describes her pilgrimage to Assisi. She says that during Mass in the Upper Basilica, she was led into the infinite abyss of God, and she was blessed with an absorbs, uh, abyssal absorption in God. This gift, however, was meant not just for Angela, but also for her followers, because she also had a vision there at Assisi, in which she sees them all swallowed up in God, so that, and I quote her again, they seem totally transformed into God as if I see nothing else in them save God, now glorious, now suffering, so that it seems that they are totally transubstantiated and inabissated. Transubstantiase and inabissase. Angela has not only formed a neologism, but also made a daring claim for mystical transformation by creating a parallel with the conversion of the bread and wine into Christ's body in the Eucharist. Now, Angela was neither the first nor the last mystic to turn to abyss and its cognates to express the mystery of the human encounter with God. A survey of abyss language in Western mysticism can tell us much about the biblical basis for mysticism, about the nature of apophatic theology, and also about changing models of mystical union. Abyss is a word that has an air of mystery, uh, an element of the uncanny. Based on the Greek abyssos, literally without a bottom, in classical Greek it signified chaos or the underworld. But in the Middle Ages, at least among the mystics, it came to function as a kind of verbal black hole into which the true believers could plunge and become lost in God. One of the things that recommended abyss language to the mystics was the fact that it was used so often in the Bible, 51 times in the Vulgate. In many places, both in the Old and New Testaments, it keeps the sense of the underworld or, or the abode of the dead. But other uses go beyond this. The Hexamaron at the beginning of Genesis speaks of the darkness on the face of the abyss, indicating the undifferentiated stuff out of which God creates forms the universe. Psalm 35.7 speaks of God saying, your judgments are great abysses. Psalm 103.6 describes God as clothing himself with the abyss as with a garment. The most mysterious text, and the one that had the most impact on mystical understandings, occurs in Vulgate Psalm 41.8. Abyss calls out to abyss in the voice of your cataracts. All your heights and your billows have passed over me. Abyssus abyssum invocat. But what abyss is calling out to what other abyss? And why is it calling out? Although Psalm 41, which begins with the deer or the soul yearning for the fountains of living water, was often given a mystical reading by the fathers, the abyss calling out to the abyss was not given such a reading among the patristic authors. Let me just give you one example, and that's Augustine. Augustine first interprets the abyss as the impenetrable human heart, so that the abyss calling out to the abyss is the heart of the preacher calling out to the heart of the sinner to remind him of God's judgment. 
he gives a, uh, a second reading. This is in the Anorationis and Samos, obviously. Second reading where he appeals to Psalm 35.7, where he says uh, Psalm 41.8 can also indicate the death of God's present judgment against sinners, calling out that they save themselves from the deeper abyss of the judgment of the damnation. In the 12th century, however, Psalm 41.8 begins to be used in broader ways to indicate a positive and not a totally negative or threatening relationship with God. Bernard of Clairvaux uses abyssus 63 times, mostly in a traditional way referring to the abyss of human sinfulness or the <coughs> divine judgment. He actually comments on Psalm 41.8 three times. In one case, identifying the abyss that calls out with the abyss with God calling out to humans. With Bernard, however, the two abysses have absolute uh, different values, positive and negative. The luminous abyss, I'm quoting Bernard here, the luminous abyss, that is God, calls out to the abyss of darkness, that is the human heart. The abyss of mercy calls out to the abyss of misery because the human heart is so deep and impenetrable. So the two abysses here are, are contrasted as, as good and evil. Nevertheless, Bernard's appeal to Psalm 41.8 seems to have made it possible for other 12th century authors to begin to explore ways of interpreting the psalm text. The Cistercians Isaac of Stella and John of Ford, as well as the Carthusian Guigo II, offered variations on Bernard's view. But William of Saint-Thierry went beyond Bernard advancing a positive interpretation in which the first abyss is the present embrace of the soul by the Holy Spirit, calling out to the perfected abyssal embrace which will come in heaven. So here you have two positive abysses, in, in a sense, rather than the contrast between the human bad abyss and the God, the divine good abyss. So in the 12th century, the psalm text was beginning to be read as revealing a positive relationship between God and the human soul stage was set for a major development in the interpretation of this biblical verse, a shift that took place within the context of what I've called the, the new mysticism of the 13th century. These developments in the new mysticism that made possible what I call the flowering of this language really, I think, uh, involved three separate factors. The first element was the rise of the notion of the possibility of attaining a union with God that was more than just the uniting of the finite human spirit with the infinite spirit, but that dared to aim for, at least on some level, a union of identity or of indistinction with God. In such a union, the abyss of the soul and the divine abyss call out to each other because they are similar in possessing an unlimited nature. But in what way were the dual abysses without limit, infinite? Here a second development in mystical writing is important, one that held out that the infinity of the dual abysses was rooted in the insatiable yearning of love, <coughs> mina, amor. That is the mad excessive force that was the essence of God and was also the fundamental reality of the human spirit's yearning for God. So in that sense, both God and human are mad lovers. Lovers whose desire for each other can only be satisfied and also further inflamed by their merging in the fused abyss. The These two elements, 
emerged in the course of the 13th century, first among women mystics, Beatrice Nazareth, Hadrick of Antwerp, Angela Foligno, Marguerite Poret. But it's not restricted to women because we also find it in Jacopone Datore, the Franciscan tertiary. The third element in this potent new form of mystical language did not appear until the early 14th century with the creation of what I call the mysticism of the ground by Meister Eckhart. In Eckhart's 14th century followers, the master metaphor of the shared grunt of God and the soul provided expressive possibilities within which abyss language, abgrunt in Middle High German, afgrunt or afgrunt in Middle High Dutch. This then attained its apogee in the writings of Tower, Suso, and Risbrook, all in different ways, heirs of Eckhart. It's perhaps not puzzling that full-fledged abyss mysticism, if I may call it that, despite its strong presence in Angela and Jacopone and others, became less prevalent in Italy in the 14th and 15th century, I think because the three factors I've just highlighted were only realized in German language mysticism north of the Alps. It's interesting, and this is in a sense a kind of a side, so the only 14th century Italian mystic who uses abyss frequently is Catherine of Siena. Catherine speaks of the abyss of God's supreme providence, chapter 153 of the dialogue. And she once talks about a holy abyss of knowledge, knowledge in ourselves and in God. But her dominant reference, I think about 25 times, is to what she describes as the abisso et woco della carità, the abyss and the fire of charity. Very frequent, especially in her letters. Most often the reference is to divine love in general, but she also identifies the abyss with the charity of the Trinity and twice with the Holy Spirit. In seven letters, she invites her readers to gaze into Christ's open side on the cross to see the fiery abyss of charity. To give you just one example, letter written to Raymond of Capua in 1379. She says, What is the brazier on which we should focus our mind's eye? Christ crucified. In the brazier of our humanity, he held a great heat, revealing to us the fiery abyss of God's unimaginable charity, shining with the eternal Godhead, the divine nature fused with fire and with our humanity. But Catherine, as far as I've been able to see, has no sense of the soul as an abyss, nor does she appeal to the theme of the double abyss. And after Catherine, I find abyss language only with uh, very sporadic appearances among the Italian mystics of the late 14th and into the 15th century. In Northern Europe, however, abyss language flourished from the 14th century, although it grew rarer in the 15th century, but experienced a revival in the 16th century. So that's kind of where we're going from here on in. Two Dutch women, the Cistercian Beatrice of Nazareth and Hadwig of Antwerp, the earliest witnesses to this new stage of abyss language. And they're both writing, as you know, the first half of the 13th century. Beatrice's mystical journal, partly <coughs> preserved in the Vita written by her confessor, as well as in her vernacular work, The Seven Manners of Loving, contains the earliest kind of first-person uses of abyss language. 
the fourth of the seven manners of loving says, because of such abundance of great spiritual sweetness, she, the soul, Beatrice, became totally celestial as if she was absorbed into the abyss of charity. Beatrice follows this with another well-known mystical topos. Like a little drop of water running down into the vast expanse of the sea, her whole heart's affection took on a heavenly nature at the same time that she was immersed in the ocean of eternity. Beatrice's seven matters of loving are filled with the tension between her insatiable yearning for God and the failings that prevent her from loving God as much as she wishes. No matter how much the soul loves, it is never enough. So that all loving gives the soul no rest. What it ought to desire but cannot attain is a great pain to it, and therefore the soul must remain in agony of heart and dwell in grief. So the text uh, isolates, uh, oscillates, excuse me, oscillates between experiences of excess and insanity of love and then restful states of fruition after she's just had too much. And in these she says that she's speaking of the sixth stage where she says the soul then becomes like, like a fish swimming in the vast sea, resting in the deeps, like a bird mounting on high in the sky. Finally, the seventh stage of loving, the seventh manner, she speaks of the goal of the soul's striving as the deep abyss of God, which is totally present in all things and yet remains incomprehensibly beyond all things, immutable, perfect being, all-powerful, all-intelligent, all-operative. For Beatrice, then, God is the abyss towards which the insatiable <coughs> suffering soul is drawn. But the soul itself is not directly described as an abyss, nor does she make use of the passage from Psalm 41.8. Combining the excessive love found among the women mystics of the 13th century with the duality of abysses, as far as I can see, first occurs in Hadi. The Flemish begging uses abyss language fairly often in her letters, poems, and visions. And Hodrick was also skilled in employing a range of images for the depths of the abyss. In, in her 11th vision, for example, she's taken up in spirit, and she says that she sees a very deep whirlpool, wide and exceedingly dark, in which all things are included and pressed together. The whirlpool is another uh, verbal cognate, I think, for abyss here. The inexpressible depth of the whirlpool abyss is identified with the entire omnipotence of our beloved. After further showings, Hadrick reflects on the one thing that fully satisfies her in all these divine gifts that she's been given. She says, I want to remain in the deepest abyss alone in fruition. The abyss of fruition, of course, is the excess of love. Hadrick is cast into it by love in Song 7. She says, my soul melts away in the madness of love. The abyss into which she hurls me is deeper than the sea, for love's deep new abyss renews my wound. For the Flemish begging, however, there is an abyssal equality between the soul and God. And this is because soul and God alone can satisfy each other. The most striking expression of this is found in letter 18. <coughs> I'll quote this text at a little uh, greater length. 
The soul is a bottomlessness in which God suffices to himself, and his own self-sufficiency ever finds fruition to the full in the soul, as the soul for its part ever does in him. Soul is a way for the passage of God from the depths into his liberty, that is, into his inmost depths. And God is a way for the passage of the soul into its liberty, that is, into his ground that cannot be touched without contact with the soul's depth. As long as God does not belong to the soul in his totality, he does not truly satisfy it. Now, though the word afgrunt, this, doesn't actually appear here, this text is filled with its equivalents. Grundlosikai, deepsten, grunt, deepai. And I think it makes clear that both God and the soul are interrelated depths, interrelated abysses. They alone can satisfy each other because of their infinite nature. The double abyss, or more correctly, two abysses that become a single one through the power of love, is prominent also in Marguerite Perret. The mirror of simple souls it contains the word abyss, abinim, or abyssus, about 17 times in the book. I'm going to give you figures because it gives you some sense of just how often these are, these are used. In chapter 43, Lady Love says that the soul possesses its powers of memory, understanding, and will in the abyss, which is the one being, namely God. In chapter 53, <coughs> reason addresses Lady Love as, O most sweet abyssed one, O dulcissima abyssata in the Latin form. How and why love has become abyss is explained in the long chapter 118 on the seven stages of mystical progress, where the, soul, where the word abyss is actually used five times. If the insanity, the fury of love, is the center of Hodvik's teaching, in Marguerite Poirette it is love's ability to achieve <coughs> self-annihilation, to vanish to such an extent that the anima abyssata no longer exists at all, but God becomes the mirror in which he sees himself in which the soul used to exist. Marguerite's seven stages, of course, as you know, stage four represents the level of the inebriation of love, which is where many mystics held was the highest experience. Think of Bernard of Clairvaux. Marguerite will have none of this. The soul must go higher than stage four into levels five and six. Seven is reserved for heaven. In the fifth stage, the soul totally gives up its free will and places the will back in God, so that now such a soul, she says, is nothing, because she sees her nothingness from the abundance of divine understanding which makes her nothing and places her in nothingness. In the deep understanding of her wretchedness, again I quote, she finds there is nothing, there is neither beginning nor end nor middle, but only an abyssal abyss without bottom. Abyssal abyss without bottom. <laughs> soul must remain in the abyss of humility so that it can gain some access to the sixth stage where the soul, purified and, cl and clarified, sees neither God nor herself, but God sees himself in her, for her, without her. God now sees himself in the vanished abyss of the soul. Now, Marguerite does not cite Psalm 41.8. Well, we might say that her view of final union could be translated as saying that the divine abyss calls out to the abyss soul 
to become one in the nameless abyss that is God's own seeing of God's self. Meister Eckhart's mysticism of the ground has significant influence on his followers and successors. This form of mystical discourse can be summarized in a phrase the Dominican repeats in several sermons. God's ground is the soul's ground, and the soul's ground is God's ground. It's also expressed in the famous formula of ocular identity. The eye with which I see God is the same eye with which God sees me. Eckhart's exploration in using ground language to help his audience understand their inner identity with God involved a host of images, metaphors, language games. And among these was an occasional use of the term opulent abyss. I find it six times in the German works for describing the God Godhead, uh, or the being, sometimes <coughs> being in general, but usually the God Godhead. Let me give you just one example, Sermon 12. When God sees that we are his only begotten son, then God is very quick after us and acts as if his whole divine being would be broken apart and reduced to nothing in itself so that he could open up the whole abyss of his Godhead and the fullness of his being and his nature. Then God wants that this nature should be ours just as it is his. So here's the Abgrund Sainte-Gold-Pipe. Eckhart's mysticism of the ground was part of the catalyst, I believe, that allowed his successors, writing between about 1325, 1375, to bring abyss language to a new level. The Dominicans John Tower and Henry Suso were directly, of course, influenced by Eckhart. The Flemish canon Jan von Roosbrook had a more complex, still unresolved relationship to uh, Eckhart. Roosbrook criticized Eckhart, though never by name. His mysticism, however, is shot through with Eckhartian themes, although always transposed into his own mystical language. All three authors make frequent use of this language. And again, mere numbers can be deceiving, but my, my own rough calculations, Abyss is found uh, altogether 55 times in Suso, uh, 41 times in Tower, and 35 times in Rusbrook. So it gives you some idea. This, this occurs throughout the course of their works. I'm going to try to say, to summarize these three major uh, figures. Tower is important. Tower is the first to explicitly interpret Psalm 41.8 as describing the yearning of the divine and human abysses in order to attain indistinct union. The Dominican has a rich vocabulary in which he relates grunt Abgrunt with what he calls the gemüte, that is the, the inner mind or the, the fundamental inclination of the person. Tower's use of Abgrunt, in a sense, goes beyond what we find in Eckhart, as is evident in a text in his Sermon 41. In this text, after speaking of the birth of the word of the soul and the different forms of union with God, he says, Here the word of the prophet taught in the psalter becomes true. Abyssus, abyss of invocat. The abyss draws the abyss into itself. The abyss that is the created thing draws the uncreated abyss into itself, and the two abysses become a single one. I, 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 a pure divine being 
so that the spirit is lost in God's spirit. It's drowned in the bottomless sea. It's worth noting in this passage that it is love that draws the uncreated abyss into the created abyss so that they unite into an identical, undifferentiated, single one. Key term, all in Cartesian mysticism. Tower uses Psalm 41.8 two more times in the same way. Toward the end of Sermon 45, for example, he talks about how self-annihilation leads us into the inner divine abyss, Children, he continues, there one loses oneself totally in a true loss of self. Abyssus abyssum invocat, the abyss calls the abyss into itself. Through self-annihilation, the created abyss compels the divine abyss to swallow it up. Its depth, he says, and its recognition of its nothingness draws the open abyss into itself and there the one abyss flows into the other abyss and there is a single one, one nothing in the other nothing. One nothing in the other nothing, so I call it double nickel version of the mysticism. And these dual abysses also occur in a few of Tower's contemporaries. I'm going to cite some of them in them. So if you look at it, Tower uses this language in about 28 of his 80 sermons. It's clearly a major element in his mystical vocabulary. Two other aspects of his use are worth mentioning. Tower seems to have preferred Adgrunt over Grunt as the term to express the deepest level of union. As in Sermon 5, Sermon on the Canaanite Woman, where he employs a very, he employs a very interesting wordplay. Grunt, Adgrunt, Slunt. Slunt. This is the text. She abandoned herself down to the grunt of eternity. This is the Canaanite woman. She was so abandoned that she was straightway drawn far above every intermediary and drawn completely into the divine abgrunt. She was truly swallowed up in a wondrous divinity. Oh, what a wondrous slunt that is. Slunt, I think it's chasm or something like that. But this seems to be the final. You know, go from the grunt to the abgrunt to the slunt. Second point is that although a number of passages might suggest that the soul is doing the drawing of the divine abyss into itself, other texts clarify that like Porette, Tower taught that the merging is the work of the divine abyss making itself receptive to itself within the annihilated soul. Preaching on Pentecost, Tower says that the Holy Spirit, quote, must prepare the place, create the receptiveness in the soul, and also dwell there to receive himself. It is in the ineffable abyss of God that must be his dwelling place, must be his dwelling in the place where he is received, not in the creature. Turn to Henry Suso. Suso has rich uses of abyss language. The treatment uh, especially powerful is found in the final chapters of the life of the servant, where he answers the request of his friend Elfbeth Stagel about the proper understanding of three questions that she poses what God is, where God is, how God is. Speaking of God as the abyss, however, is pervasive throughout Suso's works. Uh, Fifteen times a little book of eternal uh, wisdom, etc., etc. And Suso also expresses a kind of personal relationship to the divine abyss. In the account of his trials in the 38th chapter of the life of the servant, remember the trials he's accused of bothering an illegitimate child and all sorts of other bad things. But in the middle of all these trials, he breaks out into a fervent prayer and he says, 
Oh, endless abyss, come to my aid or I am lost. Oh, endless abyss. The first time I found a, a prayer address to the, to the abyss. Oh, endless abyss, help me out, I'm really in trouble. However, I want to concentrate just very briefly on chapters 50 to 52 of the life, the densest part of the work containing many uses of Agra. Chapter 52, on the most sublime flights of the soul experienced in spiritual things, begins by noting that the sermon will try to explain how the experienced soul is supposed to reach its goal in the deep abyss. An exposition of the Cardian Trinitarian theology follows. Suso says that as the spirit is drawn deeper into God, into the nakedness of divine nothing, it loses all knowledge of itself. This realm, not unlike the God beyond God found in some Eckhartian texts, is both mountain and abyss. Paradox of the coincidence of immeasurable height and depth. Suzo continues, In this wild mountain region of the where beyond God, there is an abyss full of play and feeling for all pure spirits. And the spirit enters into this secret namelessness and into this wild foreign terrain. It is a deep, bottomless abyss, woundless, keepless, abhorrent. For all creatures, it is intelligible to God alone. Suso has a strong sense of God as abyss, but what about the abyss of the human spirit? Book 1, Chapter 6 of the Horologium Sapientiae twice cites Psalm 41.8 in reference to the love that draws the disciple to divine wisdom but largely in terms of Burnett's contrast between finite human desire and infinite perfection. Thus, Suso does allow for an abyss present in human nature, but it's not prominent in his thought, save for one important uh, instance. Chapter 53 of The Life begins with Elspeth praising the servant for his description of the flowing out and flowing back of the spirit, but she goes on to ask for a picture of the process. After insisting that no image could ever be adequate to this, but allowing the use of pictures so that one may drive out images with images, Suso gives an extended account of the progression of all things from the God, who in his Godhead is like a very large circle, whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere. The details of this mystical itinerary emanating out from and back into God as set forth in the text cannot be pursued here, but the illustration, here's the picture, accompanying the text has a caption attached to the circle at the beginning of the process. You'll find it in the upper left-hand uh, uh, part of the picture. And it reads, this is the modeless abyss. This is the modeless abyss of the eternal Godhead that has neither beginning nor end. Now note that this wasn't used in the in the text itself, but abyss appears in, in, in the picture. Visually, I'm sorry it's in black and white, the abyss is pictured as a kind of green circle. I call it the ultimate donut. <laughs> <laughs> the ultimate donut of the divine reality before it's flowing out of the three persons of the Trinity. But if you look, each of the persons of the Trinity has a little circle. And as you follow things down to the good souls, which are on the left-hand side, as we look at it, each of those has a little abyssal circle in their bosom, thus indicating that they too are abysses. 
this is the only pictorial representation of the dual business known to me, but you might find others. Jan van Rusbrook. For the Dutch among you, I'm not going to leave them out this time. <coughs> Rusbrook uses Afgrund and Abyss and their cognates frequently. He occasionally speaks of the fathomless, of fathomless love, Grundelosa Minna, a variant for one of his key terms, essential love, Vedalika Minna. Rusbrook, the abyss expresses the modelessness of the divine unity. Quote one text. The abyssal modelessness of God is so dark and so modeless that it encompasses within itself all divine modes and activity and property of the persons in the rich embrace of the essential unity. And it produces a divine enjoyment in this abyss of namelessness. Like Hadwig and Eckhart, Rusbrook made use of other images for incomprehensibility, such as the desert and the whirlpool. Some images, however, are unique to him, such as that found in the brief poem of the text known as the Seven Enclosures, which compares the abyss to the divine stomach of God's love. This is the translation. O mighty jaw without any mouth, conduct us into your abyss and make us know your love, for though we be wounded mortally, when grasped by love we are sound. So the mighty jaw without any mouth will bring us into the divine stomach abyss. In two places, Rusbrook invokes Psalm 41.8 to express the union between the divine abyss and its created image in humanity, humanity created as a mago dei. Discussing union without intermediary in a long second section of the spiritual espousals, he says, the abyss of God calls the abyss inward. That is, all who are united with the Spirit of God in enjoyable love. This inward call is an overflowing of essential brightness. And this essential brightness and an embrace of fathomless love causes us to lose ourselves and to turn, to stream away into the wild darkness of God. In his longest work, The Spiritual Tabernacle, there's also another reference to Psalm uh, 41.8, but I won't, uh, uh, I'll skip over that. Although he makes use of a number of itineraries of mystical progress, Rusbrook is best known for his threefold model. Union with intermediary, the ordinary sacramental life. Union without intermediary, that is uniting with the Trinity. And finally, what he calls union without difference, the state of indistinction. For Rusbrook, all three forms interact and coexist both here and in heaven. He uses abyss language with regard to union without intermediary and also union without distinction, as becomes clear from the different appearances of Afrum in the spiritual espousals. His treatment of union without intermediary, the employment of this language uh, demonstrates its role as a form of uniting. While in part three of the spiritual espousals, and also in the little book of enlightenment, he employs abyss language frequently in talking about the third stage, union without difference. Discussing the highest stage of unity in the latter work, he says, enlightened persons have found within themselves an essential inward gazing above reason and without reason, and an enjoyable inclination, surpassing all modes and all essence, sinking away from themselves into a modeless abyss of fathomless beatitude, 
where the Trinity of Divine Persons possesses their nature in essential unity. So it's beyond the Trinity even, where the Trinity possesses their nature in essential unity. Now, some of Rusbrook's followers continued to use the language of abyss, but really rather rarely. I'm thinking about the Nordens, Jan von Leuven, and Hendrik Herp, but nowhere near as prevalent as, uh, as we have with, uh, with Rusbrook. Now, before I get totally lost in the abyss myself and forget about the time constraints, I want to close with some pages on 16th century uses of abyss mysticism. Two female mystics from the Low Countries made notable contributions to this form of mystical discourse. The anonymous women who wrote the text known as the Evangelische Perle, the Evangelical Pearl, and the recently uh, edited, I don't think the edition is even out yet, the Arnhem Mystical Sermons. Uh, most, one of the most wonderful texts uh, in, I think, in late medieval mysticism. Wasn't even studied uh, until a couple of decades ago, and an edition with English translation is in the works and should be out quite soon. These texts are written in the 1530s and 1540s in Gelderland, that is in Eastern uh, Netherlands. And uh, they represent what I call a renaissance of Northern European mysticism in a new environment. That is the early decades of the Reformation. Both works use abyss language. The Arnhem sermons prefer the term grunt or ground, used about 500 times. Afgrunt is more sparingly used. But it does occur. Sermon 88, for example, speaks of the ground of God's abyss. And the term uh, abyss of love, afgrunt occurs in at least three or four other sermons. The most important appearance that I've found in these sermons is in Sermon 103 for Trinity Sunday. This sermon says that the dignity of the Feast of the Trinity requires, and I quote, to offer and to sink our soul in the hidden abyss of the Godhead, who without cease calls to the deep of our own nothingness, our own nothingness, as the prophet says, O God, you are truly a hidden God, and also the abyss calls out to the abyss. There are two of the primary texts, Isaiah 45, 15, God, very two of and Psalm 41, 8, Abyssus, Abyssum, Invocat, are brought in to indicate the, the double abyss and, in a certain sense, the double nickel. The Evangelische Perla uses abyss language more frequently. Uh, 32 times in the third of its three books, that's the only part that's available in, in, in English, and I, I haven't had a chance to sit down and see how often it occurs in the other two books, but I imagine uh, the Evangelical Pearl must use abyss about 100 times, very frequent term. Pearl employs Ockrant in a variety of ways about both God and the soul. I'll give you just one example. An important treatise is found in the midst of uh, the uh, first book on the fusion of human and divine nothings. This is a discussion of three practices for attaining union with God. The last practice is the practice of attaining nothingness. And the discussion here has many affinities with Eckhart. In chapter 40, uh, that discussion goes on to three chapters, but chapter 40, the anonymous author explains this annihilation by setting forth teaching about what I call the double nothing, the double nickel. She says, laying aside every interior activity, 
let us cast ourselves into the point of the divine essence so that we may never return. There and then, essence is grasped by essence. There the nothing that is God is found by the nothing that is the soul. There, nothing is swallowed up by nothing. Chapter 42 of the same treatise explains the nothing in terms of abyssal love. She says, the abyssal nothingness received itself wholly in a form of the abyss, and in this abyss that is in God, it loses itself and is consumed in God. God comes down and descends in such detached and resigned persons in an abyssal manner, and there he is embraced by the loving soul that becomes close to God. Chapter 12 of Book 3, that's Book 2 in the Latin version, expresses this same merging more succinctly with the help of our old friend, Psalm 41.8. When the spirit understands that such a precious good is in it, then abyss calls out to abyss. The abyss of the Godhead calls the abyss of the soul into it and wants to possess it and to rule it entirely. I'll close with just a couple of uh, uh, paragraphs here on the reformers. The fact that abyss mysticism was so closely tied to the German language mysticism of the late Middle Ages helps explain its role among Reformation authors. Despite his praise for both Tauler and the Theologia Deutsch, Luther shied away from abyss language. Even Psalm 41.8, he gives a two-line, his uh, super psalmos, he gives two lines to it, just repeating Augustine. Two of Luther's protégés, who became radical reformers, and like him, it read widely in German mysticism, do make use of the obruant. Tauler's Wittenberg colleague Andreas Bodenstein of Karstadt read and annotated the 1508 edition of Tauler's sermons. 2,500 annotations in the text which survived. He explicitly noted the appearance of the double abyss theme in several of these sermons, but Karstadt doesn't use it in his own writings. But Karlstadt does speak of both God and the soul as abysses, although always separately. Especially in the two mystical treatises he wrote in 1523, Treatise on Releasement, Galassenheit, and a treatise called The Manifold Singular Will of God. Twice in the Treatise on Releasement, Karlstadt invites his readers to, quote, sink our wills in the abyss from which all things have flowed out. You think you're reading Eckhart. Sink your will into the abyss from which all things have flowed out. Another text speaks of the dark abyss of the soul, but the dark abyss in a very positive sense. Second author, Karlstedt's contemporary Thomas Munzer, used abyss language more frequently in his sermons and theological tracts. Munzer speaks of the abyss of the heart and the abyss of the soul. I found about 15 different appearances so far, and I haven't read all of Munzer, but. Um, uh, Münster sometimes echoes language found in the medieval mystics, as when speaking of the faith that comes to us from pure fear of God is contrasted with unbelief, he says, this unbelief, you have it, this unbelief will be discovered through the putting on or breaking through of the divine spirit into the abyss of the soul. Breaking through into the abyss of the soul. That's what true fear will do and lead you, of course, into the correct form of love. However, Munzer never speaks about God as an abyss. Again, as far as I've been able to read him. 
This is evident in an interesting uh, liturgical uh, passage. Munzer was the first person to translate the Latin liturgy into German, even before Luther, if you may know. And in a collect he composed for the Feast of Christmas, Munzer uh, does use Abrunt, it's the first liturgical use that I know of, but again, in, a, in an anthropological sense, this is the collect. O good God, open to us the abyss of our souls, the Abrunt, so that we can grasp the immortality of our inner mind, Onsus Gemutus, through the new birth of your son, through the power of his flesh and blood by which he lives in you. This prayer, and I think other passages cited, show that the relationship between the divine and human abysses was sundered among the early reformers, even the ones who continued to use abyss language. One of the most sustained uses of the language of abyss in the 16th century reversed its meaning, the mystical meaning. John Calvin, as William Bausma has shown, was terrified of the abyss. He employed it as a master metaphor for the lack of limits and chaos that threatens humanity. Even when Calvin cited biblical texts referring to God and divine judgments as abysses, he tends to pass them over very quickly. And in his commentary on Psalms, when he's interpreting Psalm 41.8, he refers it only to the historical sense. That is, it refers to David's problems in his own time, so he has to call out to God, oh, you know, kind of things are really, really bad with me. Most of the appearances of abyss language in the Institutes and Calvin's scriptural commentaries are negative. The abyss of hell, the abyss of death, the abyss of idolatry, the abyss of confusion, the insatiable abyss. So as Bausma puts it, Calvin, and I quote here, was chiefly driven by a terror that took shape for him in the metaphor of the abyss. You see rather different valences have, have transposed themselves very strongly. So to conclude. The tradition of abyss mysticism, rooted in biblical texts, especially Psalm 41.8, had a remarkable life as a mystical theme between the mid-12th and the mid-16th centuries. After this, it seems to have decreased in importance, but further research may reveal new dimensions. Used in different ways by different mystics, this language had two primary foci. First, to point to the incommunicable mystery of the divine nature, and second, to express the mutual relationship between the hiddenness of the divine nature and the secret inner depths of the human person created in God's image and likeness. In the psalm phrase, abyssus, abyssum invocat, mystics found a kind of mantra for their meditations, meditations on the startling claim that the unknowable God and the unknown depths of the human person could somehow become a single, pure, unknowable abyss Ein, einig, ein. Thank you. So thank you very much, Bernie. Um, and we do have time. It's 5.05, so we've got some, some good time for some, uh, some questions or comments. Uh, and Bernie, do you want to field them yourself? Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll be happy to field sure. any questions, observations, criticisms. <laughs> pictures, if you have other abyss pictures that you'd like to share with us. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Don. Uh, I'd like you to kind of guide us in a little more detail through the picture of the yeah. 
Well, I actually brought along uh, uh, Frank Tobin's uh, you know, uh, text here. But you start at the upper left-hand corner uh, here with the, uh, with the abyss text. This is the limitless abyss of the eternal Godhead, which has neither beginning nor end. Then you move out to this odd thing that looks like a kind of tabernacle uh, resting, on its, uh, resting on its side, uh, a kind of screen veiling the Godhead. And then you move on to the Trinity of Persons, where the caption says, because it's hard to read in the, uh, this is the Trinity of Persons in substantial unity. Uh, the figure to the left is uh, God the Father. The Son is in the middle as a man of sorrows. It doesn't uh, appear in this text as well. There are two or three versions of this. I did, I've given you one. The Strasbourg one is the most familiar. This is a different one because the, the, the figures are, uh, are bigger. And you see the little line. In the, uh, in the original, that line is red. You start out with a little green donut. Then the red line connects everything. And then, as you can see from the, from the Trinity, you move down to the angelic nature. See a picture of the angelic nature. You move down to a praying soul. Move down to a nun uh, who is praying. Uh, then a nun who is surrounded by arrows. And like these are the temptations uh, of life. And then the nun seated who is meditating on Christ on the cross above her. And that's the way back into God, up through the left. On the right-hand side, what you're seeing is the bad thing. You're seeing a fallen angel. Looks, some of them looks like a kind of goose being you know, shot out of the sky. And down to a couple disporting themselves with death uh, holding a sickle over them. And you know, those figures don't have, don't have the donut. It's only the good side that, that has the donut. And uh, the captions, uh, again, I won't read them all, but the, the, uh, uh, Frank translated these in the, um, uh, in the preface uh, to the Suso volume in the, in the classics of Western spirituality. And it's fascinating, of course, is that this caption adds a lot to what's it, it adds things to the chapter, the things that are not in the chapter. But I would agree with the art historians like uh, Jeffrey Hember and others who studied this and said, you know, these illustrations were prepared under Suso's guidance. So, uh, Suso is adding things to the, to the picture. Uh, I have some slides of these, but since this is the only picture I'm using, I decided not to bring the slides. Is that, is that helpful? I got it. The great mystical itinerary. Oh, yes. I was wondering if, if you know um, how much this story might be pushed into later centuries. Um, are, there's some of this double um, of this language maybe in the Spanish Quietists, with um, their annihilation kind of theme? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, 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 I haven't pushed it fully there yet. I've read most of these people, and I don't find a lot of abyss language in the Spanish mystics, both the Spanish mystics like John of the Cross and Teresa, and I've read Molinos, for example, and, uh, and various others. It does continue to occur in the German language mystics. It's certainly in Silesius, uh, as in Burma. I haven't tried to figure out exactly how much in Burma. I don't recall it in Johann Arndt, but I, you know, it's been a long time since I've read Arndt uh, and, and looked for it, let's say. Um, the term abyss occurs in Teresa Lisseux. Now, where she got it from, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, so I, my research continues, and if I get to, if I finish the seven volumes, I hope to have an answer. 
Okay, I think that's a very good question. Yeah, it didn't die out in the 16th century, but I think it will look, uh, you know, moved in other other directions. Yes, Amy. I'm just to, I mean, I'm sure it's not there where you were mentioning it, but I was wondering about Richard of St. Victor's Four Degrees of uh, Violent Love, given that it's a source text for Beatrice and, and Hadda. Um, do they add the Abyss language in the, in the discussion of mad love? If it's not there in the... In, in, for, I don't recall it in Richard's yeah, uh, in Richard's that. treatise actually. I mean, he has all the power of love, the right, insatiable right. madness of love, right. and of course it's wonderful. Begins uh, and others picked this up, but I don't recall him citing the scriptural it's text on, on a disc. But yeah. I should go back okay. and take a take a look at that. And the other other person I was wondering about is Hadwick too. Hadwick too. Oh, because I know it's there. Yes, and it does. Yeah, and yeah. that role that Yeah, it's it's certainly in Hadwick too, and actually I think uh, footnotes here. I mean, I, I just chose the major figures here. Yeah, the footnotes okay. still was in. Yeah, yeah. It is in Hadwick too, but less than I had expected it to be. Interesting. I think uh, I forget how many times, but just a handful of times in in Hadwick too. So it, it's it's widespread, but uh, I can't say to the people who really use it very extensively. Yeah. As I said, Rusbrook's followers, uh, you know, all deeply influenced by by, by Rusbrook, obviously, and they employ it, but you know, it kind of it, it's, it becomes a minor metaphor yeah, or yeah. theme or image. Why I do not know. Yes, in the back. Uh, they're pretty indistinct, but I, I think what's at play here is this. Just as the tabernacle opened up reveals the mystery of the Eucharist within, so this, they, these open up to reveal the mystery of the abyss. I mean, it's odd why they would choose this particular form, but I think that's that's what the artist had in mind. That it's not so much the it's the opening of the panels that then reveal reveal this Afgrund Veda Veda Anfang und kein Ende. Jerry. At the end of the 16th century, beginning of the 17th century, Valentine Michael uses Eckert yeah. on the basis of the Basil Fuller. But in a significant way, he kind of subjectivizes it. Unlike the Graham and others. Yeah. No, I'm, I, I'm going to actually, I haven't quite gotten to Valentine Michael, but he's going to be in the chapter I'm working on. And, the mysticism of the of the radical reformers, and I know him a little bit because we did that volume on Weigel and the classics of Western uh, spirituality. My recollection from when I was working with that volume uh, was that there's not a lot of this language there, but he certainly knew his Eckhart, but he changes Eckhart. I agree with you on that very strongly. Yes? Um, I, I have a question. I mean, you'll have to help me with the text so that it can start
Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, take Rusbrook as a good example. In Rusbrook, you have these three levels of union. The first is the union we all have through the church and its rituals. The second is the Trinitarian union, which the soul gains because it has an Augustinian structure. It has the three powers again of memory, uh, intellect, and will. So Rusbrook is filled with Augustinianism, you might say, and Augustinian uh, access to the Trinity on that level. But beyond that, there's a third level of union, which is union of indistinction. And he can use abyss language both with regard to union, uh, both with regard to the Trinitarian union and the union that in some way is beyond uh, beyond the Trinity. Same way with the Meister Eckhart. Meister Eckhart uses Augustinian uh, language uh, and Augustinian anthropology, but within a, a wider envelope uh, in, in which you, you, you go beyond that level. Similar to talking about Corette and, uh, and Union, you know, for Bernard of Clairvaux, uh, the fourth level uh, is, is the ultimate level of loving union with God, and Corette has that, but then she says, oh, wait a minute, there's, there's stuff beyond this, there's levels five and six. So these 13th and 14th century mystics don't reject the past, especially the, the Augustinian past and the Cistercians, etc. But they they build a, a, a higher level. They build a, a superstructure on top of that. Yeah. Yes, in the back. I'm trying to push a little bit the relation to that which came before. I'm wondering what does abyss language grow out of? So, like in Origin or Ambrose of Milan have Song of Songs that becomes the, the, the focal point for mysticism and, and mystical relationship. But I'm presuming that the Song of Songs is still being commented upon in the time when they're using the best language. So is, what is it that this language replaces from the tradition that precedes it? I wouldn't say it replaces it so much as it enriches it. Again, I don't think I'm, it's my whole approach to the study of the mystical traditions, uh, in a certain sense, is the continuing enrichment of various themes. The Abyss language is rooted in certain scriptural texts, but doesn't have a whole book like the Song of Songs. But I think it becomes one of the ways to express negative theology, apophaticism. And as we know, by the second century, some Christian thinkers like Clement and to some degree Origen are already pushing that. By the end of the fourth century, with the Cappadocians, especially with Gregory of Nyssa, this becomes very, very uh, powerful. So it's one of the ways, that one of the things in the scripture that they can find as a scriptural basis for apophaticism and, and negative theology. Oddly enough, and I, I searched a good deal, most of the fathers, even the Psalm commentators, don't do much with Psalm 41.8. Uh, it's not in what survives of origin. Uh, of course, a lot is lost. It does survive in Augustine's Generaciones uh, with these two two forms of commentary uh, that you know basically I wouldn't say are really mystical, although much more directed to the Christian practice of repentance and necessity of overcoming sin. Uh, and it's by the 12th century that it begins to be used in a in a mystical sense, I think, with the Cistercians and uh, and others, and then. In the new mysticism of the 13th century, it takes off in an unusual way. But people like Hadwick, who use this negative language, are also still using the Song of Songs and the erotic tradition very powerfully. So enrichment rather than supersession. Yes? I've been interested in 
Eckhart metaphor of the ground, and I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about the strategy that an author might have for using the ground metaphor as opposed to the abyss metaphor, or is together, or what is the goal for the choice there? Well, to put it in modern terms, you're deconstructing language and all the language that we use about, uh, about God. Uh, and I think uh, these are what I call verbal strategies. I think uh, Grund becomes what I call the master metaphor, the explosive metaphor for Eckhart. But there's lots of it, the desert, and occasionally the abyss and various others. But none of these, none of these is a thing in itself that's a place of, they're ways of showing the limitations of language in all that we know and think about God. And so it's, it's in the practice of playing the game of, of deconstructing deconstructing the scriptures, which is the wonderful thing about Eckhart's uh, you know, ex, exegesis, deconstructing the scriptures, deconstructing all of our own conceptions and modes of speaking, that we begin to get some little glimpse of the divine. Uh, so you, you don't have to choose, you use them all. Uh, it, it is interesting to see, though, that Eckhart prefers Grund, uh, and his followers begin to move and explore much more Abgrund, Abgrund. Yes? Uh, you know, we, we see here in the handout, the Trinity makes the appearance. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned with Catherine of Siena, too, uh, kind of mentions the Trinity and uh, the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Um, Ra rarely, there are a couple of texts. Yeah, so I'm thinking also the Christological perspective. Uh, have you found any, any kind of this language that speaks of Christ in the abyss or going to the abyss or any of that sort of thing? Well, Catherine of Siena may be the best example of that because most of her uses of abyss language are gazing into the wound in Christ's side to see the abyss of God's love within the wound. Uh, and so, I, uh, and but oddly enough, that that language isn't much taken up then by the later Italian mystics, mostly women uh, mystics. Uh, whereas this German side, which isn't intensely Christological, it's not that it's non-Christological, it's a-Christological, but the German side takes it in, in another kind of uh, another kind of direction. At least that's how I, how, how I see it. So Catherine would be the person to look at. Yeah. Yes, John? And I'm thinking of Julian and the wound in Christ's side that's large enough for all of us. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Not exactly. Not exactly the same, but certainly the size emphasis it, it, it indicates something like an abyss. Yeah, I that. Yes, over here. I'm not sure if there is any connection, but given that a lot of this is from the German tradition of mysticism, did you, just in your understanding, that sort of this imaging of connecting to God through some sort of inexplicable vastness or abyss and then there seems to give way to this whole tradition of German pietism that does connect more Christologically you know and much more fixated on the blood of Christ yeah, and, yeah. Mm -hmm. and and that kind of thing like very um, it goes from something vast like outer space to something very material and very you know what I mean like I, yeah, I'm, not, no. I'm not sure quite but I think you understand the question I do yeah and it's, it's an interesting question because uh, Take a text like the Evangelical Pearl. It's got everything. It's got everything. It's kind of the kitchen sink of late medieval mysticism. So there's really a tremendous amount of piety in Christ's blood. There's a lot of liturgical mysticism. But then there's a tremendous amount of the Cardian mysticism of the ground and the Abgrund and, and etc. 
So in some of these mystical texts, you, you can really combine all of these features in the same way with Suso. I mean, I emphasize only one aspect of, of Suso's mysticism, obviously, but Suso is filled, of course, with, with a Christological uh, uh, mysticism and, and, and devotion. So, uh, you know, we don't really have to so much pick and choose. They, many of the mystics did not. They sought ways to bring together whole ranges of, uh, of tradition. Sometimes they seem to cohere. Other times it's difficult to say how they, how they made how they made use of them all. But these two texts especially, the, uh, the Evangelical Pearl, for which we now have the translation of one of the three books, and then the coming edition of the Arn of Mystical Sermons, which was going to be the Middle Dutch and English. Fascinating reading. Uh, new voice, a powerful voice in the history of mysticism. It was virtually unknown. Yes, see that.
community, I think it, of, uh, of Reformed, I think in Amsterdam or something like that, and he tells them, don't read that tale of Geodeutsch, that's crap, that's really the worst stuff that's ever been written. No, it's about what he says. And unlike Luther, of course, he praised the tale of Geodeutsch and, and Luther's followers. For Calvin, Bernard and, and Augustine, of course, very, very important, but the German language mysticism for him was uh, no, no. Yes, Kevin. Um, this, this might call for speculation. I wouldn't want to make this as, an, as a causal historical argument, but as Mark Schiffman was asking about the relationship between the image of the Trinity in the soul and the abyss of the soul, let me throw it out there and see what <coughs> reaction. But it's just, it occurs to me that the abyss language seems to crop up at exactly the time where the, the Trinitarian image in the soul, they become faculties in, in a sort of in this reified way. And so in, in so far as the Trinitarian image becomes fixed yeah. and something you can grasp and understand as sort of things within the soul, even metaphorically speaking, well then, not that's, this is why people start talking about abyss language, but abyss language has the function at least of balancing that, saying, well, yeah, but you don't have, you, you can't grasp, the, yeah. The, yeah. you can't grasp God within the soul like you can grasp memory, understanding, and will within the soul. It's not like you can sort of see transparently, here's the Trinity within. So I'm just, I'm, I'm just wondering if there's a, again, not causal, but sort of some kind of uh, relationship there that in which, I mean, deep speaks unto deep in this way, that sort of Trinitarian language, that yeah. this language sort of speaks to a kind of reification uh, or potential reification in scholastic thought mm -hmm. of uh, faculties, of the soul's faculties. Yeah. I don't know. Well, that's an interesting question. And what I thought of is you were, as you were speaking was this. There's a growing break between scholastic theology and mystical theology. And it starts in the 13th century and it becomes endemic in the 14th century. In someone like Meister Eckhart and Anna Bonaventure, mm -hmm. he these two sides together. But I think Eckhart's <coughs> condemnation is very important here because Eckhart's students, like Suso is very well trained and others, abandon scholastic theology and begin to attack the scholastics. And Brucebrook is filled with the same thing. Uh, and every major 13th century mystic that I know, at least north of the Alps, says scholastic theology is useless. All that stuff they're doing in Paris and, and elsewhere, that, that, had, that doesn't nourish the soul, doesn't nourish the church in any sense. So you know, part of that reaction against the over-technical and reified scholastic theology of, of their time may be, may be at work in the way in which this language begins to grow and get bigger and bigger. Yeah. Maybe that's why the Trinity is separate from the Well, of course, it's part of what, um, you know, Eckhart and the so-called God beyond God, the texts in Eckhart that say, no, you've got to go beyond the Trinity, deeper than the Trinity, than the three persons, etc., etc. Um, I think that uh, when you ask Eckhart, and I've argued this way, I mean, they're both, they're both one and the same. When we visualize it, uh, in a certain sense, we, we the artist has to visualize it that way. That's why it's important to have the abyss still, you know, within the within the three within the three persons. But it's true that the late medieval mystics, beginning with Eckhart and others, pushed language about a God beyond God in ways that it had never had existed before in in the history of the, of Christianity. I, I would say. Okay. Yes, Jerry. To what extent is this movement, as it were, beyond, as it were, beyond the Trinity, uh, pushed by the impact of Maimonides on the doctrine of the unity of God? 
Well, it's possible that that's an influence to some extent in Eckhart. Possible. I don't know whether it's probable or not. But he, he was the only one of these people who really knew, and he knew Maimonides very well. Uh, so he, he might have found some kind of alliance there with the text he knew in, in Maimonides. Uh, but as I would say, it's possible, but I don't know. Uh, okay, two more, Carl, and then one in the back. Carl, yeah. Yes, a uh, question like this has been answered, asked already, and maybe the answer is similar, but I'm curious how far this uh, language of abyss gets incorporated into a Eucharistic theology. There was a citation near the end of your talk about the power of Christ's flesh and blood. Yeah, that's uh, that's our friend Münzer, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but, but in terms of I would say no. Uh, I mean, this develops in a rather different way from uh, uh, from Eucharistic mysticism of the late Middle Ages. Again, you find many of these mystics who include, uh, you know, Eucharistic Eucharistic mysticism within these other traditions. Again, I point to the Evangelical Pearl, Evangelical Pearl text. And that Munzer text surprised me when, when I discovered it because, um, you know, it's in the collect for the Mass for, uh, for Christmas. Very interesting that he puts it, and he puts both mystical terms, the Afgrund and the Gemüte uh, from, uh, from the Talarian uh, tradition. But with Munzer, the Abyss only describes us. He never uses it of, uh, of God, which again is, is quite you know, curious. I mean, for him, God isn't, he doesn't speculate on God. God is the judge, the apocalyptic judge, and you better shape up. You know, there's no speculation about about the Trinity or abyss of God in, in, in Munzer. But it's just in the collect, and I don't, you know, I'm not a Munzer expert, but that's what I've been able to find so far. There was one question in, in the back, too, yeah. It's sort of a, a follow-up question to Kevin. Um, decades ago, some Berto Echo dedicated a couple paragraphs The argument he tried to make was that the, the, the use of beauty as an attribute of God decreases in the late Middle Ages and abyss language grows. And I heard an echo of that in what you were saying, but I was wondering, does, does, does that seem right to you? Does, does, does beauty disappear? It sounds like abyss is just added. Yeah, I think it's more, it's much more complex then any 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 simple formula is going to uh, is, is going to capture there's very important uh, things about beauty and the role of beauty in the path back to God some of the English mystics for example and you know take take the example of Suso here we have Suso who who is deeply Eckhartian in various ways especially those last chapters of the life of the servant and yet he also incorporates images build images to drive out images uh, but you need the images in, in that sense. And so he's also an artist, or at least an artistic patron, who has these pictures uh, done. And it also illustrates, as he tells us, you know, he uses pictures in his cell and, and pictures on, on the wall of, uh, of, of the convent, etc. So there's a deep connection uh, between late medieval mysticism and late medieval art, as people like you know, Jeffrey Hammer and others have, uh, have shown. 
So it's much too simple to say that speculative language drives out appreciation for beauty and, and the role the role of art. On that note, thank you. Thank you.